Welcome to FASD Hope, a podcast about fetal alcohol spectrum disorder through the lens of parent advocates with over 21 years of living experience. FASD Hope provides awareness, information, and inspiration to those people whose lives have been touched by FASD. And I'm the host of FASD Hope, Natalie Beck-Young. Welcome to today's episode. Welcome to today's episode of FASD Hope. This is a bonus episode with our favorite FASD expert, Dr. Jared Brown. Today's all about FASD episode is FASD and neurocounseling. And we touched upon this in the last two all about FASD episodes. And uh, today I wanted to just take a deep dive into neurocounseling and the potential benefits it could have for members in the FASD community. So uh, without further ado, I'd like to welcome back our favorite FASD educator and and researcher and clinician, Dr. Jared Brown. Jared, my friend, welcome back to FASD. Hi, Natalie. Thank you for having me. Honored to be here and hope all of you are doing well, whoever's listening to this. So we're airing this in August and, you know, a lot of folks are getting ready for back to school or back to university or even back to work. And this summer we focused a lot about health and food health and, and sugar and, and energy drinks. And there's a tie. We, we, we kind of brought up the whole tie between the whole body and neuroscience component of, of the importance of knowing that. So today we're going to talk about something you introduced in our last episode about neurocounseling and FASD. Before we start our conversation, Jared, why is it important for the FASD community to know about neurocounseling? In the neurocounseling research, I'm not aware that there's ever been a study that's talked about the use of this with folks with FASD. But if you understand this research, it talks a lot about tons of deficits that are very common to folks who have FASD. And therapy, like someone who goes to therapy, a counselor, psychologist, social worker, that's all very wonderful. A lot of counselors and therapists and just in my world haven't had training in neurocounseling. And I believe, this is just my opinion, I believe if you can truly understand this body of research, you're going to be in a better position to understand human behavior on more of a holistic level. So basically at the core component of neurocounseling is counseling practices at foundation And now you're infusing neuroscience research into what you do. And if you do that, you're in a much better position to understand how the brain works, why the brain maybe does this, brain dysfunction, the central nervous system, the HPA axis that we talked about, and really understanding the interconnectedness between the brain and the body and our mood states and our energy levels and the gut and what biological factors could be at play, which we've talked about, like blood sugar dysregulation, hormonal dysregulation, our biological factors, and really technically being exposed to alcohol or drugs or different kinds of traumas in utero really is a biological insult on the body and brain. It is very important when you study this field, obviously, to take into account like the psychology factors when working with someone. So like 
depression, anxiety, but social factors too, what's going on in the community, in the home, with your friendship network, but also the physiological components, what's going on physiologically in one's body. Anytime I give a presentation, I get nervous. My heart starts racing. I don't breathe as well. That's a physiological response. We all have it. If you've ever dealt with insomnia, that's a physiological-based disorder. We, we know what's going on. We know that maybe we need to take a few deep breaths. Maybe we need to take a pause. But what happens if someone with FASD has a really huge physiological reaction? They may not know what in the world's going on. And I've seen this on cases I've consulted on. The person becomes very dysregulated physiologically. And then that manifests in the person running away from the group home in some cases. A couple cases I've consulted on, the person became so dysregulated with their staff, they tried to jump out of a moving car. Elopement behaviors, running away behaviors, high levels of irritation, irritability, rage control. Technically, if you were to really understand the biochemical factors and the physiological factors that may be going on in the body that then manifest itself as these externalizing behavioral problems, I think we're in a much better position to help individuals who have FASD or any other kind of neurodevelopmental or neurocognitive disorder. So that's neurocounseling. Kind of 101 basic overview. But Nally, any, any thoughts on that before yeah. I go deeper? So it really ties in, Jared, what we keep saying, what is a recurring theme here on FASD Hope is, is think brain first. Think about the brain. Think about the body, the brain-body connection with emotions, with social interactions, with with everything we've you know spoken about in the past three years. Um I, and I find this really fascinating because, um, you know, when you we talk about general counseling or, or therapy in working with individuals living with FASD, we know that um, anecdotally, it, it, you know, general counseling may not be effective because of those brain differences that, you know, the lapses in memory, the uh, inability to connect action with consequence. So I, I'm really, really interested in this and, and I'm glad that we're talking about this. Um, let's take a deep dive into neurocounseling specifically. What makes neurocounseling, in addition to knowing about the neuroscience, what makes it so different and so potentially beneficial versus traditional counseling? My opinion, when we infuse this in the FASD literature, because again, not not a lot of studies that I'm aware of, but again, we, if you're listening to this, you're a researcher, this is a great avenue to take a look at. But neurocounseling is a, really an integrative mind-body approach. And I, I just, we, we know that FASD, obviously it impacts the brain, but it is a full body disorder because if you look at all of the co-occurring issues that can happen, as a result of being exposed to alcohol in utero, it's very important to understand not just what's going on in the brain, but the body and how it all communicates together. Neurocounseling approaches can also help develop an intervention or goal plan on a more holistic kind of level. So they're taking into account brain-based science, 
you're taking into account biological factors. So some of those biological factors that we've talked about, it could be nutritional deficiencies. Have you ever skipped a meal and, and you're, you're feeling a little tired or lightheaded and maybe your blood sugar levels dip? I do a lot of work in the area of blood sugar regulation in terms of giving talks on related topics. And if you believe the research, just general research, not FASD specific, one of the best things we can do to help improve mental health is to learn about the importance of regulating our blood sugar levels. And we talked last time about energy drinks. What better way, if you truly want to dysregulate your blood sugar levels, start drinking energy drinks every day. You will absolutely have spikes in your blood sugar and then it'll crash and you might feel high energy and then you might be near impossible to wake up. And there's a lot of cases I've consulted on where the individual with FASD seems on the surface, I don't, I don't know, addicted to it would be, it's a strong word, but definitely it's kind of a habit forming behavior where someone seems really dependent on these sugar sweetened beverages, or they just seem to, to skip meals a lot. That's just something to take into account. In this research too, it talks a lot about using brain-based psychoeducation. I love that because let's say someone with FASD goes to a therapist and that therapist doesn't understand FASD, which most therapists, in my opinion, have, don't have much training in it. And most people with true FASD have never received a true FASD diagnosis, unfortunately. So we know misdiagnosis is very, very common. So somebody that has FASD, diagnosed or undiagnosed, goes to therapy because they're dealing with mental health problems, depression, anxiety. The person goes to the therapist. Therapist does all the right things by the book. But that book was not written for an FASD brain. So if a therapist asks someone with FASD a whole bunch of how and why questions, how are you feeling? Why do you feel depressed? Why are you, why do you have all these mood swings? Someone with FASD might have a hard time connecting the dots because of those abstract reasoning deficits. And if that therapist is using insight-based therapeutic approaches, it, it just does not work most cases for someone with FASD. What seems to work better is education, coaching, teaching, modeling, role-playing, and not just in a therapy office, but then learning how to take those skills out of that controlled setting and learn how to generalize those skills by applying it on the school bus, in the classroom, on the job, on the playground. This is where it gets tricky too, is that therapists who work with people with FASD who aren't FASD informed are all well-intentioned. I'm not putting anybody down. They're, they're probably doing great work. But what can happen is someone with FASD can master that skill in that therapy office. So the therapist then thinks this person's got it down. They're good to go. The minute that person with FASD in some cases leaves the therapy office, that information can't be applied to those other settings and for a variety of reasons. It could be memory problems. It could be attentional issues. It could be those abstract reasoning issues, obviously executive function. So if you're not reinforcing the skill in multiple settings and involving maybe a skills worker, the family, the school teachers, 
a lot of times those folks then can't take the great skills they've learned in one setting and apply it to another. In neurocounseling, they teach brain-based psychoeducation to the client. They teach it to maybe the caregivers. They teach it to other professionals. They use illustrations. So maybe it's a visual chart, not just talking about it verbally, because we know people with FASD a lot of times have auditory processing or information processing. So making it visual, concrete, teaching it, involving caregivers, involving other folks is another reason why I think this field of practice can be wonderful for someone that has an FASD brain or anyone that has a neurodevelopmental or neurocognitive disorder. Talking about neurocounseling, it's really tying in the therapeutic aspect of counseling and, and, and sharing, but really the counselor, the neurocounselor has done his or her homework in neuroscience, in brain-based diagnoses, in accommodations, in, in, in all of that. Um, and I really think that it, finding a neurocounselor who is FASD informed would be such a treasure for, you know, a family, for a community, for a school who can then not only work with, you know, individuals, but can also educate and can also help create, um, like you said, you know, transfer something that you're, you're talking about in a session to the school bus, to the classroom, to home. So I guess my big question now is how would listeners start looking to find people who are trained as neurocounselors in their areas? Well, I'm going to pause for a long time. <laughs> There's not a lot of folks out there that are trained in this. And part of the reason okay. why is there's not a lot of training programs out there. There's been a couple books written on this. There's some great resources online. But I think a neuro coach is a great thing. An executive functioning coach, okay. using search terms like that, if someone understood executive function or metacognition or self-regulation or neural feedback, these are good starting points. Okay. When somebody is neuro counseling informed, they're probably going to have at least a good understanding of sleep and sleep hygiene practices because sleep plays a huge role in all of these things. And we know from the research, most people with FASD have sleep issues. People that study this will also have a good understanding about neuroplasticity. That's a really good area of study to be aware of. And in this research, it does talk about therapeutic lifestyle changes, which I'll, I'll talk about that in a few minutes. But those are really, I think, helpful interventions for anyone. And it's common sense. And we've talked about them a million times. And part of this, too, I think, is maybe just looking for people that have an integrative behavioral health mindset. So an integrative behavioral health mindset would be more of like a collaborative team where you're not working in isolation because we know that people with FASD do best usually with having a multidisciplinary team because usually there's not one professional on that team that has an expertise in all those areas. And here's an example. People with FASD more times than not have sensory processing issues. Language impairments are very common. 
trauma histories are common, the sleep issues, all of these things. So finding a professional who has expertise in each of those areas can be very helpful. And then making sure as part of that collaborative team, you're talking as a team, you're developing a goal plan that's FASD informed, you're involving the caregivers or guardians when appropriate and possible. And part of this too is really having a neuro biopsychosocial approach to care and intervention treatment planning. So neuro, understanding the neuroscience, what's going on in the brain, the bio component, the biochemistry, you don't have to be a biochemist to appreciate it. But again, understanding like the gut brain health connection, understanding inflammation, why does that matter? Chronic low-grade inflammation is a driver of many diseases and illnesses understanding the psychological and the social component. And then the team, in, in my opinion, using education, psychoeducation, making things concrete and visual, ensuring that the approach you're using is also taking into account the client's emotional, cognitive, and developmental age rather than how old they are on paper, because that doesn't mean a lot in the FASD world, it really matters more is how old their brain is, how old they are emotionally. And here's an example, someone that doesn't understand FASD, maybe that client would be highly recommended to go do like a, a treatment program where they have to go to group treatment. Let's say maybe the person's dealing with a drug and alcohol problem and someone says, oh, you should go to group treatment for drug and alcohol issues. And you know, Natalie, that group's not going to be FASD informed. So the client with FASD goes to the group with a number of other individuals in there who are all maybe 20 years old or 30 years old chronologically. That one person with FASD who's in the group maybe has a brain of a 10-year-old, a 12-year-old, a 15-year-old. So now they're in a group with a bunch of people that everyone's best intentions in mind, but now we got to consider the topic of confabulation and suggestibility and gullibility and naivete. And it's a disaster waiting to happen in my opinion. And just based on what I've seen. And that could actually do more harm than good being exposed in, in that. Yes. So I guess then to, to reframe my question is uh, it's really up to the parent, the caregiver, the educator, to really just do your research into is this practitioner, is this team, is this um, practice, are they employing these neurocounseling um, tools, resources, that kind of thing? Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's not really looking for someone who's a specialist in neurocounseling, but rather, you know, is is someone in this team or is the team, do they, are, are they looking? And I, I really highlighted that neurobiopsychosocial approach. I, I really like, you know, putting that, saying it in that term, in those terms, uh, because really when we talk about FASD, it, you really do have to think brain, body, psychosocial, emotional, and of course, developmental too. Let's maybe talk about one or two more examples of, of the potential benefits of neurocounseling for someone living with an FASD. So it's going, if you're, you're working with someone who understands this, you, you're probably going to be working with someone 
that has a good understanding too of some of the the physiological underpinnings or contributing factors to problematic behaviors. So when we think of physiological dysregulation, a good term to be aware of is psychophysiology. And when we start thinking about psychophysiological based approaches, that's a branch of psychology, but it really is focused on understanding the physiological basis of many different kinds of psychological processes and understanding that a lot of times emotional states such as anxiety, fear, worry, stress are really physiological based disorders. So when you study this, you, you would understand like that fight, flight, freeze response. That's something going on in our bodies physiologically that now then manifest emotionally and behaviorally. And interestingly, too, people that have a lot of physiological dysregulation over the long haul, they might have more headaches. They might have more digestive health issues. They might have more aches and pains. It's been studied within the context of all kinds of different disorders. So basically, what are things that can cause physiological dysregulation? If you've ever been through a lot of stress, yeah, we absolutely. If you are somebody that has a hard time separating work from home life and you work all day and you come home and you work all night, you're probably starting to feel more tense in the body. Maybe you start to feel a little warm and now you lay down at night and you're just so amped up you can't fall asleep. That's a physiological dysregulation. Chronic fatigue during the day, like chronic fatigue syndrome, could be an issue related to this. Arousal issues. So if you ever work with someone that has up and down arousal issues, low low levels of energy, high levels of energy, it's like a roller coaster ride of emotions. It's like everywhere, the, the person's crying one minute, laughing the next, and it just can't make sense of what in the world's going on with this person. Some of that's definitely related to physiological-based kinds of things. Natalie, have I taught, I can't remember uh, on your program, have we talked about psychoneuroimmunology? We have not. Psychoneuroimmunology basically is a field of study that pulls in neuroscience, epigenetics, molecular biology, all kinds of things. And it's a mind-body approach to understanding human disease, human illness, fascinating research. Anytime I give talks on neurocounseling, I talk a little bit about psychoneuroimmunology because it talks about a lot of like, how does stress impact our mood and energy and hormones? How does our mood state affect inflammation, sleep? It's a really fascinating area of study too. And when you're studying neurocounseling, it doesn't say this in that literature, but understanding psychoneuroimmunology, really, really fascinating stuff. And at the core of a lot of the things that we've talked about over the time we've done this is really understanding executive function. I would highly recommend that because everyone with FASD deals with some level of executive function. And one component of executive function is working memory. And in the neurocounseling literature, it does talk about working memory. And if a therapist or counselor or whoever the professional is doesn't take into account the increased likelihood that someone with FASD has working memory deficits, then the client may really struggle with multitasking, 
they may really struggle with applying what is heard and then integrating that into their day-to-day life unless it's chunked out and making it very concrete and visual. People with working memory deficits who take in a lot of information and have higher levels of sensory overload. So they become very dysregulated and they may like run away or they may shut down. So working memory can overload the brain. It can also create like a bottleneck or traffic jam in one's brain where they can't take in all this information and process it. So their brain just kind of shuts down and they're done with it. Working memory deficits, very, very, very common. Natalie, do you want me to keep going deeper into that? Or those are just some of the things you want to be aware of. So I want to just ask one more question before we start talking about research, because I know you mentioned research. So thinking about neurocounseling and thinking about everything that you've mentioned, and, and that's something that we really should just have in the forefront of our minds continuously, you know, when, when we're talking about FASD. Um, let's talk a little bit about how neurocounseling can impact and make positive lifestyle changes, because that's something that we try to, um, you know, we, we try to create for our loved ones with FASD, um, especially with, with young adults. And we know that with that neuroplasticity, um, our, our young adults living with FASD, they still have that potential for, for growth and for, um, you know, their, their brain to continue to, to learn, you know, even, even through like, I think what I've read and heard in the, you know, research literature is through the mid to late twenties. Let's talk about those, how neurocounseling can, can impact those potential lifestyle changes, especially as someone gets older. So some of the strategies that are discussed in the neurocounseling literature, one of them is called therapeutic lifestyle changes, which I mentioned briefly in the beginning. It's very common sense approaches. All humans should probably do this. But under the umbrella of therapeutic lifestyle changes is going to be thinking about getting the appropriate amount of exercise Exercise, without a doubt, is medicine. I mean, there's a million studies on the benefits of exercise in general. Anything I'm saying, again, before you go out and do it, talk to your doctor, healthcare provider. Therapeutic lifestyle changes in this literature does talk about the importance of understanding nutrition in dietary practices. Again, talk to a nutritionist before like doing anything, but... We've talked about energy drink consumption, excessive sugar consumption, the Western diet, malnutrition, food insecurity. Every one of those things is a threat to human health and well-being. Other things that people might not think about that talk about within this research literature is the benefits of getting out in nature, being in the woods, being around wilderness, green space exposure is something to be aware of. Now, I'm not aware of any research that's talked about this specific with FASD, but tons of studies have talked about this within the context of just humans in general. But some of the research shows that people that consistently try to just get out in nature more, it, it has a protective factor around reducing stress, depression, 
it reduces anxiety. Some of the general research literature on this has found that green space exposure may actually help improve cognitive functioning. It helps reduce air pollution. It helps people move more and not have a sedentary lifestyle. And it may actually help reduce loneliness, which I believe, if I remember right, I can't remember if it's the Surgeon General of the United States or the CDC or someone has said that loneliness is one of the biggest threats to human health now because it, it's a chronic issue and COVID just made it worse and worse. So loneliness would be something to be aware of as well. So green space exposure, something that's talked about under this umbrella. Other things that are talked about under this umbrella is just improving relationships with people. So if somebody has a lot of conflict with their loved ones, family members, if they really struggle with communication and social skills, which we know unfortunately is all too common with folks with FASD, focusing on learning improved relationship skills can be very, very helpful. The therapeutic lifestyle changes does talk about religious or spiritual involvement too can be helpful depending on the person's belief system. And it talks about the importance of maybe considering volunteering which is a fascinating area if you've ever studied volunteering research. The benefits associated with volunteering are phenomenal, the research shows. It just helps people get out of themselves. It helps them reduce shame. It helps them connect with other people. So volunteering could be something to consider. An another area of study that is very similar to this, but it's not talked about within the neurocounseling literature per se is lifestyle medicine. So maybe the, sometimes medical doctors may have some training in this, but lifestyle medicine talks about exercise, developing more resilience, getting better sleep, improving your social connections, and eating a whole food plant-based diet is talked about in the lifestyle medicine literature. And there's, there's several interventions that talk about ways to target biopsychosocial factors. And the interventions that are talked about in that literature, again, you're going to hear common themes, dietary interventions, so eating healthier, getting better sleep, exercise, improving your social health. But it also talks about the benefits of maybe cognitive training, so maybe improving cognitive functioning through self-regulation, through executive function, metacognition, brain-based training apps, things like that. But it also talks a lot about the importance of identifying and monitoring health risk factors. And those could be a million things. So a couple things come to mind. If someone's smoking cigarettes, that's a health risk factor. If someone's dealing with obesity, if someone's dealing with sleep apnea and it's not treated or insomnia or has some sort of underlying health issue and they never monitor it, take care of it. If someone has type two diabetes and just doesn't care about monitoring blood sugar levels, if someone never goes to the dentist, but you know that client has a bunch of cavities. I mean, those are examples of just being mindful and monitoring health risk factors that could really contribute to some serious issues down the road, not just physically, 
but behaviorally and psychologically as well. I have several more I can talk about, Natalie, but um, well, I, I know maybe... we would we would probably extend into another episode if we kept talking. This is such <laughs> a, a great rabbit hole that we've dove into. What I would like to do, though, Jared, first of all, I've written all of those down so that I can share those what you've mentioned in our social media notes for this episode. You've touched upon the research, and I know there's a call to action waiting in this episode. You know, I love talking with you because we usually end up with um, sometimes with call to actions on specific topics, subtopics in the FASD community. So before we end with a call to action, um, what research have you found with neurocounseling and then anything specific with brain-based diagnoses and FASD? Well, I, I've been giving more talks on neural counseling to professional audiences, and I frequently hear that th- this is an eye-opener. If I can start infusing this into the work I do, it's only going to enhance the good work the person's already doing. And people are shocked to learn how simple some of these strategies are. I'll give you one example. In the neural counseling research literature, it does mention the benefits of engaging in jigsaw puzzles, putting together jigsaw puzzles. When I came across that, I was like, whoa, what's this about? I did not, I didn't have any clue. So I did a little digging on the research on jigsaw puzzles and people who put those together. And I was shocked to learn there's several studies that point to the fact that jigsaw puzzles may help improve cognition It's been shown to have a benefit on improving visual spatial reasoning. So like depth perception and using your hands effectively, things like that. It's been shown to help in some cases improve attention and concentration. And it can help people develop a sense of collaboration and teamwork and problem solving if they're doing it with other people. Now, none of this research that I'm aware of looked at it specifically through an FASD lens. This is just general research. But w- wouldn't that be cool? Someone did a study on, okay, you put this group of folks with FASD through a program where they did jigsaw puzzles like every day for how much time and what benefits did that associate with them? And some of these things I'm talking about, you know, if you do it with someone, in my opinion, what's the worst that could happen? There's no side effects for trying to put together a jigsaw puzzle. Maybe the person might get frustrated for a minute and quit, but it's different than throwing a million meds at the person. I mean, that's just my opinion, but talk to your doctor about that. It's a whole nother ball game. And in this research literature too, and related literature, it talks about interventions for the parasympathetic nervous system. So we've talked about the nervous system at times, The central nervous system, the autonomic nervous system, the parasympathetic nervous system. When we think about that, if you've ever worked with someone that has a lot of trauma and they have that fight or flight response, they're just really dysregulated all over the map. That's a sympathetic nervous system response. They're kind of out of balance, out of homeostasis. Parasympathetic nervous system balance is now when we're more equilibrium, we're back to balance. In this literature, it talks about interventions that can be helpful for helping that nervous system maybe kind of calm down and regulate. Mindfulness meditations talked about, deep breathing exercises, using guided imagery. It talks about engaging in 
like creative arts, sand tree work. It even talks about Tai Chi and yoga and progressive muscle relaxation. And it also interestingly talks about doing needlework, like crocheting and knitting may actually help regulate the parasympathetic nervous system. But again, this stuff has not been studied specifically for an FASD brain that I'm aware of. But if you're if you're someone that has the right credentials in this and trying like progressive muscle relaxation therapy, deep breathing, things of that nature, yoga, if it's a trained person, maybe it will help. Yoga has been studied within the context of autism and ADHD quite a bit and brain injuries and serious mental health issues, but has it been done within the context of someone with FASD? I'm not aware of any studies, but I've talked to caregivers who have kids with FASD. They've done stretching, deep breathing, and things like that. And they, they say it can help. So something to think about. So there's our call to action, Jared, is is that talking about FASD and neurocounseling and, and everything that we've spoken about today, um, if you are credentialed, if you're a researcher, if you're a clinician, and there is definitely a lack of uh, research, particularly with FASD and the area of neurocounseling and, and the techniques and the strategies that you've talked about. This is a call to action. We need more research out there because we know that so many of these techniques are potentially very helpful, especially like I'm thinking of the nature and the green space. Oh my goodness, that would be such a wonderful study to show how being in the green space, being outdoors for individuals with FASD. We know that there there are camps, there are, you know, equestrian therapy, there are other things that have worked so wonderfully for our loved ones with FASD. So um we're putting a call of action out there to today. And if you or know of anyone that would be interested in doing this type of research please reach out to us, you know, or, or consider this like the, the intro to get the ball rolling. There's really a need for this. My background is music therapy and recreation therapy many, many years ago. And listening to these techniques, Jared, I'm thinking of, okay, so we're really talking about one of the, one of the factors in here is positive recreation, positive a vocational types of activities, you know, and, and that's something that when you are a parent of, of youngers that you can instill, you know, what are positive hobbies, positive recreation, positive activities, positive creative outlets that you can have and, and, and building those and allowing your child to, to use those to express himself or herself then can lead up to as they get older, you know, so if it's art, for example, or if it's being out in nature and hiking, that's something that that's a, I would think, and correct me if I'm wrong, Jared, but I would think that's like a protective factor that they can take with them as they grow older. Would you agree? I would absolutely agree. And that's a great way to make it practical. And I would think they would carry that with them and that memory would be able to stick with them a lot more than maybe just sitting face to face in an office talking for an hour. Now, I'm not minimizing that. I think that's very important, too. But making these things practical and again, like the animal assisted interventions, play therapy, art therapy, music therapy. What about therapeutic gardening? I know lots of people that FASD that love to do hands on things. They love to just 
get outside and do things. Therapeutic gardening. What about group drumming? Therapeutic drumming. That's talked about in the general literature. And I know there's some studies on autism. I mean, some of these things to me are just very common sense. And I think it's helpful for any human being, regardless of diagnosis or disability level or functioning level, you feel connected. You're with other people. You're getting a little exercise, maybe. You're breathing in some fresh air rather than sitting in the basement glued to the screen for 10 hours a day playing video games. You you might be eating a little bit healthier. You're learning some social skills. Maybe you connect with a coach or a mentor and you just feel valued. You feel known. You feel heard. And that can empower the person to help them maybe thrive and do whatever they want to do in life, obviously with appropriate guidance and support and services, of course, too. So this is a good segue, Jared, into next month's topic. We're going to be talking about these cutting edge new, um, maybe not so new, but just these interventions that you're going to be, um, you know, talking about that could be very helpful for um, individuals in the FASD community. So that's, this is a little segue into that. And then I'm also taking our, this conversation, especially this last part as our hope takeaway that I think that if you can instill in your loved one, these, these healthy, practical, creative ways to be engaged and to feel, like you said, to feel heard, to feel valued, to feel like you're being seen. And that's something that you can do throughout your, your lifespan. So for example, if you have, you know, a loved one who loves working with his or her hands, then that's something you can foster and, and just continue to have grow with them. And that's something that, like you said, that's something that's going to stick with that person. It's, it's not going to leave and it's going to be in that, that core, um, that core memory part of their, their life experience. So Jared, any final words on, uh, any just final hope takeaway words before we wrap up this wonderful conversation? Yeah, thank you, Natalie, for the great dialogue and discussion here. And our next recording is really just going to focus on positives, tips, strategies, solutions, interventions, preventions. Talk about some pretty mainstream things that probably most of you have heard about, but talk about some things maybe you haven't considered, like the gut-brain health access, blood sugar dysregulation, neuroscience-informed parenting, trauma-informed parenting, attachment based parenting, why that's helpful, how do you become essential nervous system and HPA access informed caregiver and provider and why it's so important to consider when you're working with someone with FASD, regardless if it's a child, teenager or adult. Talk about executive function in there, metacognition, self-regulation, amongst a number of other strategies that I think can help make a difference in any person's life, especially someone that has a neurodevelopmental disorder. So I am so looking forward to that episode. I, I look forward to all of our conversations, Jared. I learned so much. I even have, I joke around, I have a notebook that's just for you. So I write <laughs> down everything. So listeners, next month in September, bring your notebooks, bring your pen or pencil, because we're going to be talking about some techniques and and just putting some, some resources out there, um, ones you may have considered and ones that you haven't considered, but you should consider. So as always, Dr. Jared Brown, my friend, Thank you so much for this wonderful conversation and thank you for being on FASD Hope.
You're welcome. I'm honored to be here and keep up the great work with all the things you're doing. Thanks again for listening to FASD Hope with Natalie Becchione. Make sure you don't miss a single episode by liking and following FASD Hope anywhere you find your podcasts. Remember to be informed, take care, and always have hope.